As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stand by. 3, 2, 1, action. Assume nothing. Brash, bald faced blasphemy. Question everything. I find it extremely hard to imagine. Open your eyes. It is quite all right to be an atheist. The fastest growing group of people in the country has been measured as being those who have no belief or who are atheists. You don't have to be apologetic or quiet about it. Challenge the opposition. You see religion on a hundred fronts losing the argument. And start thinking. This is The Thinking Atheist Worldwide. Thanks, everybody, for the birthday wishes. Greatly appreciated. Birthday's actually tomorrow. 49. I got one more year before 50, baby. <laughs> one more year before the big 5-0. 
Uh, I just found out I'm going in for surgery on Friday. Not a big deal. I've been fighting tennis elbow for about a year and a half. And so I've got a torn tendon in the elbow. And Doc finally said, let's just go fix it. Just cut it open and fix it. So they're going to go in. It's uh, 10 days in a sling. And then looks like I'm off the tennis court for about four months. But uh, now seemed like the right time to do it, especially before I hit the tour schedule in May, June, July, August. You know, it's going to be a lot of travel. I don't want to haul luggage through the airports with one arm and a sling. And so I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Uh, it'll be interesting doing the podcast, though. You know, I, I can barely hold a butter knife with my left hand. But uh, I expect the podcasts to release on Tuesdays as usual. Bear with me, though, if I'm a little slow getting to whatever buttons need to be pushed. Today, we're going to be talking about addiction and addiction recovery and 12-step programs on the show. I floated the question on social media about Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs. What do you think? Is it effective? Did it work in your case? Is it ineffective? Is it a cult? And the responses poured in. Pamela said, I have a friend who's been successfully sober for more than 30 years, and he credits AA with saving his life. He still attends meetings and mentors newcomers. He's not a religious person either, so maybe it depends on the personality of the addict. Todd said, I used it for most of the 11 years I dabbled in sobriety. Nice network, but I really couldn't get into the steps, and the longer I was sober the less I felt any need to believe in the higher power crap. I ultimately lost interest and started drinking again 13 years ago. While I may have had alcoholic tendencies in my youth, age and wisdom did more for me than the 12 steps. Chris said, I'm not a fan. I gave it a shot, but it has become a very dogmatic, almost cult-like organization. They don't have a monopoly on recovery. Mike said, I found the entire premise insulting. I was forced into the program. It is not a rehab program, it's a cult. Not only did it make me want to drink, it made me consider a bullet in the head. It's that bad. David said, the results can be fantastic, but the religious approach is dubious. Non-spiritual systems can work too. Both should be available and permitted by courts. Sheila said, too much spirituality. I ended up depressed and laden with guilt. I was still a believer chasing after the God of the Bible and wondering what was wrong with me. It was seven more years before I became an atheist. I was 60 then. I did not go to more than three or four meetings after my treatment. It's been more than eight years of sobriety without AA. When you tackle a subject like this, a subject that so many people take so personally, that so many people have a real conviction and passion about, it's a minefield. Addiction, addiction recovery, 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous. I floated this topic out on social media, and it was a cauldron of just mixed responses. AA helped me tremendously. AA did not help me. It preys on people. It works. It doesn't work. 12 steps are important. They can be beneficial. 12 steps do nothing or did nothing in my case. And I'm going to read for you on the broadcast the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 steps. And we're going to talk to some people who've used at least some of the 12 steps 
on their own journey. Now, if you're looking for the easy answer to whether or not 12-step programs work, you know, the bumper sticker answer, the cookie cutter resolution to the question of 12-step addiction recovery, you're in the wrong place. This broadcast is about providing information. It's about giving perspective. It's highlighting what the 12-step program is and isn't. We'll look at alternatives to the higher power model for addiction recovery, but this show is a first step of its own. It's a forum where we're going to hear from listeners who are themselves recovering addicts. We're going to talk to a licensed therapist on the show. His name is Austin Moore. He has worked for the Center for the Study of Addiction and Recovery. He's done graduate research on atheists inside 12-step programs. We're going to talk to a former British pop musician, a guy named Jonathan Stewart of the band Sleeper. And he now travels around the UK and further, I believe, sharing his own addiction story. He was once an addict and now he's out there trying to help other people. He's going to be on the broadcast. We're going to talk about the legality of court-mandated AA treatment. I'm going to talk to Amanda Kniff, who is the National Legal and Public Policy Director for American Atheists, and Monica Miller, who's the Senior Counsel at the American Humanist Association. We're going to look at options beyond Alcoholics Anonymous, beyond the 12-step model and the idea of surrendering to a higher power. We're going to talk about secular sobriety and other paths to recovery. We're going to hear stories. We're going to encourage people on this show. And we are going to support and promote a fair and responsible and nuanced, even-handed, I hope even-handed, examination of very complicated Subjects. Now, if you want a show that hands you the answer on a fortune cookie, you know, a binary kind of a yes no broadcast, this is not it. This is not your show. But if you want to take the time to join us as we juggle the perspectives of real people and talk about the nature of addiction and the steps that some have taken toward recovery, I think this broadcast is going to be something useful and important and encouraging for you. Okay? Now, after the show, I want to encourage you to go even deeper into the subject. There's a series by Dr. Thad Polk at The Great Courses Plus. It's called The Addictive Brain. Now, Professor Polk is an expert on cognitive neuroscience, and he gets into the mechanics of addiction, how substance abuse hijacks our brains. Why do some people seem more susceptible to addictive behavior than others? Why do our bodies crave certain things, from coffee to sugar to cigarettes to junk food to gambling to video games, whatever? The support systems available for addicts. It's fascinating stuff. The Great Courses Plus offers over 8,000 lectures on a huge variety of subjects. And you can watch from any smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. You can enhance your own library of knowledge with this terrific resource and support our sponsor in the process. And right now, as one of my listeners, you can watch this and any of their courses with a free trial. When you sign up for The Great Courses Plus with my special URL, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Seth. Sign up today and browse from their entire library during your free trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Seth. I guess we should start with some history, the history of AA, or some of the history of AA. This is an article written by Brandon Kerner in Wired Magazine from a few years ago. The article is titled, The Secret of AA After 75 Years, We Don't Know How It Works. 
And I'll skip down to the middle of the article. It says, AA originated on the worst night of Bill Wilson's life. It was December 14th, 1934, and Wilson was drying out at Towns Hospital, a ritzy Manhattan detox center. He'd been there three times before, but he'd always returned to drinking soon after he was released. The 39-year-old had spent his entire adult life chasing the ecstasy he'd felt upon tasting his first cocktail some 17 years earlier. That quest destroyed his career, landed him deeply in debt, and convinced doctors that he was destined for institutionalization. Wilson had been quite a mess when he checked in the day before, so the attending physician, William Silkworth, subjected him to a detox regimen known as the Belladonna Cure, hourly infusions of a hallucinogenic drug made from a poisonous plant. The drug was coursing through Wilson's system when he received a visit from an old drinking buddy, Ebby Thatcher, who had recently found religion and given up alcohol. Thatcher pleaded with Wilson to do likewise. Realize you're licked, admit it, and get willing to turn your life over to God. Thatcher counseled his desperate friend. Wilson, a confirmed agnostic, gagged at the thought of asking a supernatural being for help. But later, as he writhed in his hospital bed, still heavily under the influence of Belladonna, Wilson decided to give God a try. If there is a God, let him show himself, he cried out. I'm ready to do anything, anything. What happened next is an essential piece of AA lore. A white light filled Wilson's hospital room, and God revealed himself to the shattered stockbroker, It seemed to me in the mind's eye that I was on a mountain, and that a wind not of air but of spirit was blowing, he later said, and then it burst upon me that I was a free man. Wilson would never drink again. At that time, the conventional wisdom was that alcoholics simply lacked moral fortitude. The best science could offer was detoxification with an array of purgatives, followed by earnest pleas for the drinker to think of his loved ones. When this approach failed, alcoholics were often consigned to bleak state hospitals. But having come back from the edge himself, Wilson refused to believe his fellow inebriates were hopeless. He resolved to save them by teaching them to surrender to God, exactly as Thatcher had taught him. Following Thatcher's lead, Wilson joined the Oxford Group, a Christian movement that was in vogue among wealthy mainstream Protestants. Headed by an ex-YMCA missionary named Frank Buckman, who stirred controversy with his lavish lifestyle and attempts to convert Adolf Hitler, the Oxford Group combined religion with pop psychology, stressing that all people can achieve happiness through moral improvement. To help reach this goal, the organization's members were encouraged to meet in private homes so they could study devotional literature together and share their inmost thoughts. In May of 1935, while on an extended business trip to Akron, Ohio, Wilson began attending Oxford Group meetings at the home of a local industrialist. It was through the group that he met a surgeon and closet alcoholic named Robert Smith. For weeks, Wilson urged the oft-soused doctor to admit that only God could eliminate his compulsion to drink. Finally, on June 10, 1935, Smith, known to millions today as Dr. Bob, gave in. 
the date of Dr. Bob's surrender became the official founding date of Alcoholics Anonymous. In its earliest days, AA existed within the confines of the Oxford Group, offering special meetings for members who wished to end their dependence on alcohol. But Wilson and his followers quickly broke away, in large part because Wilson dreamed of creating a truly mass movement, not one confined to the elites Buckman targeted. To spread his message of salvation, Wilson started writing what would become AA's sacred text, Alcoholics Anonymous, now better known as the Big Book. The core of AA is found in Chapter 5, entitled, How It Works. It is here that Wilson lists the 12 steps which he first scrawled out in pencil in 1939. Wilson settled on the number 12 because there were 12 apostles. In writing the steps, Wilson drew on the Oxford Group's precepts and borrowed heavily from William James' classic, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which Wilson read shortly after his belladonna-fueled revelation at Towns Hospital. He was deeply affected by an observation that James made regarding alcoholism, that the only cure for the affliction is religiomania. The steps were thus designed to induce an intense commitment because Wilson wanted his system to be every bit as habit-forming as booze. Skipping further down in the article, AA boomed in the early 1940s, aided by a glowing Saturday Evening Post profile and the public admission by a Cleveland Indians catcher, Raleigh Hemsley, that joining the organization had done wonders for his game. Wilson and the founding members were not quite prepared for the sudden success. You really had crazy things going on, said William L. White, author of Slaying the Dragon, the History of Addiction Treatment and Recovery in America. Some AA groups were preparing to run AA hospitals, and there was this whole question of whether they should have paid AA missionaries. You even had some reports of AA groups drinking beers at their meetings. The growing pain spurred Wilson to write AA's governing principles, known as the Twelve Traditions, at a time when fraternal orders and churches with strict hierarchies dominated American social life, Wilson opted for something revolutionary, deliberate organizational chaos. He permitted each group to set its own rules, as long as they didn't conflict with the traditions or the steps. Charging a fee was forbidden, as was the use of the AA brand to endorse anything that might generate revenue. If you look at this on paper, it seems like it could never work, White says. It's basically anarchy. But this loose structure actually helped AA flourish. Not only could anyone start an AA group at any time, but they could tailor each meeting to suit regional or local tastes. And by condemning itself to poverty, AA maintained a posture of moral legitimacy. Despite the decision to forbid members from receiving pay for AA-related activity, it had no problem letting professional institutions integrate the 12 steps into their treatment programs. AA did not object when Hazelden a Minnesota facility founded in 1947 as a sanatorium for curable alcoholics for the professional class, made the steps the foundation for its treatment model. Nor did AA try to stop the proliferation of step-centered addiction groups from adopting the anonymous name, Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. No money ever changed hands. The steps essentially served as open source code that anyone was free to build upon, adding whatever features they wished. 
By the early 1950s, as AA membership reached 100,000, Wilson began to step back from his invention. Deeply depressed and an incorrigible chain smoker, he would go on to experiment with LSD before dying from emphysema in 1971. By that point, AA had become ingrained in American culture. Even people who'd never touched a drop of liquor could name at least a few of the steps. Quote, for nearly 30 years, I've been saying Alcoholics Anonymous is the most effective self-help group in the world. Advice columnist Ann Landers wrote in 1986, The good accomplished by this fellowship is inestimable. God bless AA. There's no doubt that when AA works, it can be transformative. But what aspect of the program deserves most of the credit? Is it the act of surrendering to a higher power, the making of amends to people a drinker has wronged, the simple admission that you have a problem? Stunningly, even the most highly regarded AA experts have no idea. These are questions we've been trying to answer for 30 or 40 years now, says Leanne Cascatus, senior scientist at the Alcohol Research Group in Emeryville, California. We can't find anything that completely holds water. The problem is so vexing, in fact, that addiction professionals have largely accepted that AA itself will always be an enigma. But research in other fields, primarily behavior change and neurology, offers some insight into what exactly is happening in those church basements. And I'll read this final paragraph and then we'll get to the 12 steps. To begin with, there is evidence that a big part of AA's effectiveness may have nothing to do with the actual steps. It may derive from something more fundamental, the power of the group. Psychologists have long known that one of the best ways to change human behavior is to gather people with similar problems into groups rather than treat them individually. The first to note this phenomenon was Joseph Pratt, a Boston physician who started organizing weekly meetings of tubercular patients in 1905. These groups were intended to teach members better health habits. But Pratt quickly realized they were also effective at lifting emotional spirits by giving patients the chance to share their tales of hardship. In a common sense, they have a bond, he would later observe. More than 70 years later, after a review of nearly 200 articles on group therapy, a pair of Stanford University researchers pinpointed why the approach works so well. Members find the group to be a compelling emotional experience. They develop close bonds with the other members and are deeply influenced by their acceptance and feedback. It's a long article. I will include the rest of it via a link in the description box of this broadcast, along with all the other resources. So if you want to go deeper, I would encourage you to take the time to do so. We'll get to the 12 steps in just a second. Now let's get a perspective from one of our listeners. I've got area code 610. You are on the Thinking Atheist radio podcast. Tell me your name. It's Cam. Ken, we're talking about addiction on this broadcast. What's your perspective on all this? Well, I uh, I have a front row seat in addiction. I've been a member of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous for many years. Are you comfortable sharing the part of the story that took you to AA? Yes. Yeah, I think I am. I just uh, I want to make clear that I'm not speaking for AA. This, I'm, I'm not in any way uh, trying to represent AA's view here. I'm not an apologist. 
Yeah, I get that. AA. I mean, you're a person who who used AA as a resource. Yes, and I am an atheist. So, so what happened, man? Well, I just uh, had a real uh, affinity for alcohol. I was able to control it more or less through college, uh, my early working years, and it just uh, very quickly took over and uh, became really the focus of my life. So what's that look like? I mean, are you hiding alcohol in other containers? Are you drinking at breakfast? I mean, what? No, I was never a drinker who uh, drank during the day or woke up at night and took a drink. Uh, I would just drink at the end of the day, a cocktail concept, uh, except I took it to real extremes. It was, uh, I thought, insanity on my part. I never associated it with alcohol. was on the brink of losing my family and my job and everything, my career that I'd worked for. And uh, one day I called the EAP, employee assistance at work, uh, mainly because my wife was going to walk out. And that's how I got introduced to AA. Where were you in your own life in terms of God belief when you entered AA? Were you a non-believer then? No, I wasn't a non-believer. I was kind of a, I guess I would say, a nominal Christian, maybe a cultural Christian. I think my belief was closer to, to kind of a deistic belief. I never, I, I really never examined it or thought about it that much. It was just all part of the background of my culture and the way I was raised. Did they frame uh, I, then part of your program in terms of seeking out a higher power, leaning to a higher power? Yes. Yeah, that was definitely part of the program, but it's always qualified as a higher power as you understand them. It's it's up to you to define what or who that is, which gives you a lot of running room. Man. And it wasn't any problem for me initially, because as I said, I was a cultural Christian, I'll say. And if anything, I always felt that my, you know, I never believed in an interventionist kind of God. And I began to think that maybe that was, there was some real potential there for me to start to adapt more of that kind of belief system. And one of the steps in AA, it's the 11th step, uh, you know, there's 12 steps, uh, says that, I'm paraphrasing, I think, um, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And I thought, well, I'm really going to concentrate on that. And because wouldn't it be wonderful to have the kind of confidence that God's on your right hand shoulder and going to help guide you through life? Very appealing. Something that I'd never really held before. And so I began very seriously to examine my faith and even joined a Bible study, which didn't last long. And it was the first time I'd really examined my belief system, and it backfired on me or worked to my advantage, really. And I began to, to just question it. I started to read Dawkins and, and Harris, and it just, you know, the scales dropped from before my eyes, I guess. But Ken, if you're in the program and they're using language like prayer and meditation, God with a capital G, the knowledge of his will and his power given to us to carry out the recovery from addiction, overcoming addiction, and you don't believe in God, you understand how so many have become critical of AA for invoking what is essentially magical thinking. Yeah, 
Oh, no, I, I fully understand. And that was the reason that I contacted you, because I, I think among skeptics, when you look at AA and the literature, uh, you see a very belief-based system. But the reality that I found, at least, in AA is you don't have to believe anything. Put together a program that works for you. And nobody's going to condemn you. And, it, and it's but even the steps are presented as suggestions and the ones you want and leave the rest. It's, it's a very non-hierarchical kind of a system. Nobody tells you you've got to believe this or that. The only fundamental that really exists in AA is, you know, we have a desire to stop drinking. And that's the only thing you've got to really address. And, you know, there's a consensus around that, obviously. But So it's kind of a cafeteria plan. I mean, you go and take what is palatable for you and leave the rest. Yes, I've definitely found it that way. And the people, now I won't, I would say that probably in my area, the majority of, of people that I encounter in meetings to one degree or another, believe in an interventionist kind of God, but it's it's not talked about that often. I mean, it's not hammered at you. A is is not. It's not a cult where these things are presented as things that you have to believe. It's a very open, forgiving, broad-minded bunch of people. And one of the things that I wanted to say that there is a growing movement, a growing secular movement in AA. There have been a number of meetings for years and years, in, well, in New York and Washington and Chicago, for secular AA. And that's grown tremendously. Uh, there are now, I think the last time I counted, 244 meetings in the U.S. that are, you know, atheist, agnostic, secular. They're not merely tolerated by AA. You know, they're listed in the directories. They're certainly equal to any other meeting. There's a, a nat- there's an international organization of secular AA. They've had a couple of conventions, international mm-hmm. conventions. I went to one in Austin in November of this year. If you see atheists and secularists who are rallying around uh, an organization that has God and spirituality and a higher power and God's will listed in the actual 12 Steps, it's interesting that someone hasn't, or perhaps someone has, revised the 12 steps to become more of a sort of a reason-based, evidence-based 12-step program, right? You would think, but again, on, on the inside, AA is not a hierarchical organization. I don't even know how you would go about changing the... And remember, this material that people are looking at is almost 100 years old. It came out of you know the 1930s with a very strong kind of a religious bias, you know, we're sinners and it's only through God's salvation, that that sort of thinking. Yeah, that's my point. Um, I mean, can we update the language? Can we update with better information as we've done in so many other cases so that there's less distraction, right? And more focus on the evidence. It would be equivalent to saying, look, we're going to revise the Bible. Um, How do you start? (laughs) Uh, On a group basis, we do just that. And we change the preamble and that sort of thing. The groups that, that I go to are all secular at this point. We rarely, if ever, talk about the steps. Practically no mention of religion. Just that superstructure is not there. What are the kinds of things you talk about at the AA meetings, if I may? I mean, without betraying anyone's confidence, what are some of the things that people do and say? Well, on the one hand, it's a little bit of group therapy. People talk about the, the daily challenges they face. 
they compare how they process life now as opposed to how they did it before. And I think that's it's really kind of the underlying strength of, of AA is the group dynamics. In my case, I've been sober for a number of years, and I don't think about drinking. And I'm surrounded in society by people who do drink. You know, they're social drinkers. And it's easy to kind of minimize what my life was like. It's easy to think, well, Jesus, I can't. I can stay away from drinking for 18 years. Certainly, I could control it if I started. You know, I've tested that, and I found that I can't. Uh, it's the one area of my life that I just can't moderate. You know, I have control over most of my other appetites, but drinking is just not something that I seem able to have any control over. Well, Ken, I'm glad you are sober. I'm glad you found a solution. And as people are beginning to discover in this broadcast where they may have expected an indictment, an outright sledgehammer over the head of AA, they're actually hearing a more nuanced approach as we are realizing and hearing examples of people who have used the program. Granted, we're hearing stories of people who have sort of molded the program to fit their own needs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's been their cafeteria plan sort of thing. But, and and uh, honestly, that's encouraged. And the point about the literature, I kind of think of it as, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I don't agree with one nation under God. And I don't say that, or I don't say that part of it when I say the Pledge of Allegiance, but I have the freedom to do that. That doesn't make me any less of a citizen. And it's kind of the same concept within AA that I found. And again, I'm only talking about my experiences. I'm not in the Bible Belt. And from what I understand, can be very different there. You know, God's front and center. The meetings that I go to, it's, it's rarely mentioned. Well, we're going to share sort of both sides of that coin. I'm about to read a part of an article from The Atlantic, which was posted in April of 2015, called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is taking a bit more of a harder line about the treatment yes. program, at least the central tenets of the program. So I'm going to share the article, and we've got some other people coming up on the show who've had various experiences with AA, and we're going to try to give a three-dimensional portrait, but a fair portrait of what a 12-step program like this can do, what it will do, for better and for worse. But I'm glad you've had success in your own life, Ken, and uh, I so appreciate you sharing your perspective on the broadcast. Any final thoughts on AA before we wrap it up? Well, just this, that I would I would hate, the reason I call this, I would hate for, for a, um atheist or agnostic who has a serious drinking problem to just exclude AA from consideration on the basis that, oh, well, it's a faith-driven program, because it really and truly isn't. And I'm certainly not saying that AA works for everybody. It doesn't. I mean, people get sober spontaneously, and they go to other programs, and, and more power to them. And one other thing is, I, w I would say that in my experience, AA is a very unique kind of an organization. It's not hierarchical. You know, there's no, nobody takes role. Nobody knows my last name. Nobody tells me how to vote. There's no money. Uh, it's not tax money. They just take in enough money to pay the, the rent for wherever they're meeting and buy coffee. And that's pretty much it. So it's not out to conquer the world. That's for sure. It's, it's not a prohibition movement by any means. It's just uh, for people who honestly want to stop drinking, get control of their lives again. Well, Ken, congratulations on your sobriety, my friend. Thanks for sharing your story and your perspective on the broadcast. It really means a lot. Well, thanks. Okay, allow me quickly to read for you the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, these are steps that have been emulated by many other organizations. Some people have 
taken them and altered them in some way. But this is the foundation of the 12-step model. Step number one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power, capital P, power, greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. And finally, number 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, if you're curious about the whole God as we understand him thing, which seems hugely open and very nebulous, let me read from the wiki page on a guy named Jim Burwell, known as Jim B. or Jimmy B. He was one of AA's founding members. He was one of the first 10 members of Alcoholics Anonymous on the East Coast. And he was an agnostic. He's credited with the adoption of Alcoholics Anonymous Third Tradition, which is the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And he's one of several, as I understand it, who were fighting for a much more inclusive model a much more broad idea of what a higher power might or can be. God then became God as we understand him, which allows people a lot more latitude to be able to fashion the program for their own personal ideas and convictions and needs. Okay. On the switchboard, I have area code 303. You're on the Thinking Atheist radio podcast. What's your name? Bridget. Thanks for being a part of the show today. It's a difficult topic. It's kind of a minefield as we talk about addiction and recovery from addiction and 12-step programs. Were you at some point in your life an addict? Yes. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, I've been sober for about four and a half years now. How did all this start? Um, as far, well, let's see. <laughs> I don't know how far back well, I want to go. Only share but... as much as you're comfortable with. I don't sure. want to you know, peer in your windows sure. here, but I'm trying to color your story for the radio show. So okay. just sure. share as much as you want. Okay. Okay. Um, I started drinking in high school. Like I think many people, um, went to a lot of parties in high school, drank a lot of beer, went to four year college right out of high school. And, um, after my freshman year of college, didn't really drink so much. And then from there into the working world, graduated into social drinking. Um, you know, my family, I come from a family, we drink when it's, when we get together, um, you know, wine and beer and that kind of stuff. And 
So in for my experience throughout my 20s and early 30s, I'd say I was more of a social drinker. My drinking got bad so gradually, I think, that it on one side it was really gradual, but it was also kind of snuck up on me <laughs> where I just realized all of a sudden, you know, I'm drinking every day and a lot of times I'm drinking at home by myself and you know, there were a lot of red flags around that, but I didn't do anything about it. You know, I didn't try to make any changes at that point in my life. Because you liked the way it tasted? Because you were depressed? Um, Because it's a habit? What drives the drinking at this point? A lot of things. And I think all the things that you just mentioned, um, it was definitely a habit. I like the taste of alcohol. And, you know, I, I lived alone throughout most of my adulthood up until the last couple of years. And, you know, had work friends and that kind of thing. But for me, just definitely there was a loneliness and depression. My career, if you want to call it a career at that point, I'd always had a job. And then my my sister ended up with a home-based business. She opened a web store and they started making some money. And so she hired me full time. Well, it it had its perks, you know, it was like working from home almost, but it just wasn't stimulating intellectually at all. And so I was going through my days just with this boring job, going home to be by myself. And so it just kind of became to me a way to comfort myself, I guess, and, you know, kind of forget like how sad and depressing my life was at the time. Um, so that was definitely a big part of it, loneliness and depression. You religious? Um, I was raised Catholic, so I came from a religious family. My parents were very devout. Um, my dad died eight and a half years ago, so uh, both my parents very devout Catholics. So there's the but, cliche, right? The beer and bingo cliche that comes around <laughs> with Catholicism. Is there exactly. any truth to that cliche? Do Catholics there, like their booze or what? Yes. In my experience, absolutely. Being in a Catholic family, I'm one of seven kids. So there's a lot of us. Um, I have four brothers. They all brew their own beer. They make homebrew. One of them does wine also. My mom's a wine drinker, you know. I grew up around alcohol. Um, It was normal when my dad came home from work, he and my mom would go off and have their adult time and they'd have a couple drinks. And so as a kid, to me, it was just normal for for adults to to drink at the end of the day. So definitely, I definitely did grow up around it. So yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. (laughs) The Catholicism, the Catholics love their drinks. So We often hear when it comes to these types of stories, Mm -hmm. I hit rock bottom. Did you at any point hit rock bottom, Bridget? I did. Um, And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who say a lot of things about a rock bottom. You don't have to hit a rock bottom. Everybody's rock bottom is different. For me, I definitely hit my rock bottom. Um, Let's see. I was working. I was holding down a job, but, you know, I was also drinking on the job at that job. And um, it, I, you know, I had um, come out to, to work a couple of weeks before my rock bottom incident. They knew that I was an alcoholic because I, I came clean and told them because I was, you know, at work drinking one day and kind of got caught out on it, I think. And lucky that they did not fire me right then. But 
there's also I think there's also a legal component because the Americans with Disabilities Act can kick in and make a difference if the employee comes to you and says, you know, I'm an alcoholic, I need help. And so they were already kind of had the microscope on me, I'd say. Um, But that didn't even the threat of losing my job didn't make me decide to stop drinking because it was a couple weeks after that. Um, I was home alone all weekend, one weekend, just drinking and woke up Monday morning and I just, I was done. You know, that's all I remember thinking was I, I am done. I'm done on this earth. And I, at that moment, I honestly believed that everybody in my life would have been better off if I were dead. And I just, I felt like I had no, just no other escape, no way out of this. You know, my life was, I I was living my own personal hell at that point. You know, it was, it was hard to get out and do anything. I was so depressed. And so I ended up, I had had a prescription for sleeping pills a couple of years before that. And I had always saved some. And, you know, thinking back, I think it was almost like a subconscious, maybe kind of conscious kind of thing where I thought, well, I always have those. You know, I can always do something with those. And so this particular day, I did do something with those. I took, I don't remember how many there were. It was like maybe 10, 12 sleeping pills. Um, I'd already been drinking. So I was, you know, continuing to drink some hard liquor. And that was it. I thought, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm finished. And so laid down. And my memories of that day are kind of sporadic at this point, obviously. Um, it was a work day. So my supervisor ended up calling for a welfare check on me because I hadn't come into work. Um, she couldn't reach me. I wasn't answering texts or phone calls. And, and they knew that you had a problem with alcohol, right? Red flags yep, everywhere. Exactly. So she called um, somebody to come check on me. And I remember being in my bedroom and somebody banging on the window, telling me to get up and open the door, get up and open the door. Well, I couldn't get up. And the next thing I remember, I think I managed to get up and kind of move myself to the living room, but that was about as far. I lived in a tiny apartment. It was about 500 square feet. So we're not talking about I had to move too far. I remember a paramedic standing over me, asking me, you know, what did you take? How much did you take? And then I remember in and out kind of in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. So they got me to the hospital. Um, My mom showed up and a couple of my siblings showed up. And when my mom came into my room, my hospital room, that just the look on her face is something I will never, ever forget. Fear of anger, of disappointment, just so much that that her look just said to me. And I don't know. I mean, I can't even describe the feeling, you know, it was shame and guilt and, you know, a little bit why, you know, why didn't this work? I wouldn't be having to be dealing with this if, you know, if I was dead. So that was, you know, that's about as low as a person can get. So. Did you come out of that, though, with sort of a renewed commitment that I want to yes. fix this? I want to live? Yep, or? I did. I did. Um, I ended up going right from there. Um, I detoxed in a detox center for about a week. And then I went into a 30-day rehab program. And the rehab did not, of course, accept my insurance. 
So my mom paid for it. And she said, this is my gift to you. I don't want you to repay me. I just want to see you at Christmas. I want to see you on holidays. I want to, you know, (laughs) so, so there was a little bit and you know, my mom has always been good at the Catholic guilt, but this was (laughs) something a little extra. Yeah. She She ramped it up to 11 for you here. I'm sure. (laughs) And so, you know, I I don't want to say that she used guilt to get me to succeed. No, I get it. She's a mom. Yeah. She's a mom, right? She's like, I I love you and I I don't want to lose you. And, you know. Right. Exactly. I I get that. Was the program a 12-step program? Was it something else? Um, The rehab center that I went to, it was based on 12-step principles, which is what they say. Um, 12-step programs like AA and NA, they don't endorse any outside entities. So, you know, AA couldn't say, oh, we want you to go to this rehab. This is part of our program. It doesn't work that way. But by being based on a 12-step program, that basically means they encourage people to to join a 12-step program. Um, A lot of the work that I did at the rehab was surrounded by working steps and that kind of thing. So, so they were, you know, they were woven, but, but separate. As you're going through your 30-day treatment, what mm-hmm. kind of treatment are you receiving? I mean, is it talk therapy? Is it chemicals? Is it something else? I mean, it, it is mainly therapy. We each had an individual counselor that we met with one-on-one a few times a week. Group therapy, there was quite a lot of group therapy. There was education. You learn how addiction works. You learn basically a lot of, I think, um, cognitive behavioral therapy was involved where it's like, if you feel this way, if you start to crave a drink or drug or something, what are the things that you can do to, to ride that out instead of giving in? And, you know, like a self-esteem for me, low self-esteem was a humongous part of my drinking. So in my counseling and that kind of thing, it's like, let's work on your self-esteem, you know, let's kind of build you up a little bit, you know? So it was a lot of different things. One thing that this rehab did also do is they had two non-denominational chaplains on staff. So all of us got assigned to a chaplain, which I was not thrilled with at the time. (laughs) But, um, but my, he ended up being, you know, it was almost more like just more individual counseling. Now you weren't Mm -hmm. thrilled. You said mom was a good Catholic. So you weren't a good Catholic at this time. You were. Oh, absolutely not. No. No, I was atheist? an atheist. What? At this time. what are you? Mm-hmm. Atheist. Okay. Yes, and I was an atheist at this time, and I had been for years. Um, so is mom saying you need to come back to God? I mean, uh, uh, you know, this is obviously the next um, step for many. But the reason you're depressed, the reason you're going through all this, mm-hmm. is because Satan has a hold of your life. Is there any of that going on? Or um, a little bit. I don't think to that extent. I, I don't think that she. I don't think she believed that if Satan was involved in my life, I think that she felt if I could get, if, if I believed in God, then I would start doing better. You know, if I start going to church to my mom, like church fixes everything. So, you know, if I start going to church, things will get better. That was her thinking. And I think she was hoping for a side outcome of all of this is was for me to return to the flock. But, you know, it's, my entire experience with my alcoholism and recovery has just made me stronger in my atheism than anything else. So, 
What was your ticket out? Was it the 30 days of recovery? Was it something else? It was 30 days of recovery. From there, I went into sober living. Sober living, there's several different flavors, I guess, of of sober living. The one that I chose is that it's a pretty big national um, group that they have houses in almost every state. So the basic structure of it is it's alcoholics and addicts living together. You pay a small rent. That rent covers the rent of the, the entire house, all your utilities, you know, anything that the house shares, like cleaning supplies, laundry detergent, that kind of thing. In return, you have a weekly house meeting where you take care of your business, you pay your bills, um, you bring up any issues that you have with people in the house, go to at least three meetings a week of some sort. It didn't even have to be 12 step. And basically just follow their, the rules weren't that hard. You know, everybody got a chore to do once a week. Um, And, you know, it was just community living, basically. Um, The idea being that some of us were so, were so low by the time we got out of this, out of our alcoholism or addiction or whatever, that we kind of, had to learn how to live again, like how to be a functioning adult again. And at the same time, having a safe place to go. Um, well, I get that. You're surrounded by people who can relate to you. You've got right. friendship. You've got someone mm-hmm. who can who can get you, an accountability partner if you go through a valley or a weak moment or you, know, yes. you fall off the wagon or whatever. I, I like yep. the idea. Yep, exactly. What I'm hearing though, Bridget, I'm hearing, you know, human beings people are providing right. the solutions you for Absolutely. yourself and you for mm-hmm. others and vice versa yep. this whole higher power thing doesn't seem to really play into it although you're not really a critic of 12-step programs or are I, you um i was for quite a while i was um before i got sober i went to aa meetings people wanted me to go my family wanted me to go they thought that it would fix me or whatever and so i'd go to aa meetings to make people happy. I mean, there was a period of time that I was living with my mom. My condo had been foreclosed on. I was broke. I was unemployed. So I moved back in with her and she said, one of the conditions is you go to AA meetings. So I would do that. And I just, they always left a bad taste in my mouth. And I think at least a portion of that was my own bias at the time. You know, I thought this is just, they're going to want me to believe in God. They're going to require me to believe in God. They end every meeting I ever have been to. They end with everybody getting in a circle and reciting the Lord's Prayer. And it just, it was not for me at all. And when I look back in hindsight, now that I'm sober, I think at least part of the reason it wasn't for me was because I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to take that step to at least try and see, okay, what, even if I don't believe in God, what can this program do for me? And I just wasn't there yet. I just, I wasn't there. And while I was in the rehab center, I did discover Narcotics Anonymous. And they're similar to AA in that the 12 steps are the same, but they will take anybody with any sort of addiction, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, whether it's, you know, what, what have you, anything that can be considered a narcotic, basically, hence the name. And to me, NA felt less, I guess, less godly, less religious-y than AA felt. And again, this might just be because at the time that I started going there, I was ready. You know, this, this was what I needed in my life. 
Would you recommend AA or a 12-step program to someone who was going through the same journey that you were? I would. And I think we're seeing a shift in 12-step programs with younger people, unfortunately, still dealing with alcoholism and addiction. And I think the old school AA is, you know, we believe in God and and it seems like it's changing. And if anybody is struggling and who is an atheist, you can just Google um, AA free thinkers, and that's the free thinkers is like a, I, th- I think, a, gr- a growing movement within Alcoholics Anonymous where they say, We are atheists, we are agnostic, we are free thinkers. This is who we are. And I just think, for, I don't know, for human beings, I think we all are just looking for our people. You know, we're looking for our tribe, I guess you could say. And if you're struggling with alcoholism, AA kind of always seemed to be a turnoff for me and I think for a lot of people. But now that we've got more and more atheist recovery popping up, people are going to be more willing to give it a try. Bridget, your story have a happy ending? How are you doing these days? I am doing very well, actually. <laughs> um, Good. We, uh, I met you know, my fiancé. We're getting married in a month. So... Um, Congratulations. Thank you so much. We met in the sober living. We made a big move last summer. We moved from Denver, Colorado to Portland, Oregon. And so, yeah, next month we're just doing the courthouse wedding. So I'm I'm excited about that. That's all you need. (laughs) Just whatever. I always say whatever the wedding is for you, whatever you two want it to be. Congratulations and all happiness together. That's amazing. Bridget, I'm glad to hear that. Thanks so much for so transparently sharing this part of your life. I think it's Mm -hmm. something that many people in the audience will be interested in and many can relate to and can be encouraged by. So Mm -hmm. all my best to both of you. And uh, thanks again. Thank you. Coming up in just a second, I'm going to read for you from an article that was published recently in The Atlantic called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to talk about the legality of when courts mandate AA as part of a sentence or recovery treatment. Is this constitutional since AA has such overt religious language? We're going to get into that. I'm going to talk to a guy who in the 90s was a guitarist for the band Sleeper. Sleeper was featured in the film Train Spotting, which is a movie about heroin. And I'm going to talk to Austin Moore. He is a licensed therapist. He has also worked at the Center for the Study of Addiction and Recovery. We're going to get into some more of the science of addiction. Lots to do on the other side of this. Hang on. Don't forget those who support me on Patreon get a commercial-free version of the broadcast and a bonus show every single week. If you'd like to support me there, you can go to patreon.com slash Seth Andrews. And thank you so much for the support. From The Atlantic, April 2015, as written by Gabrielle Glasser. The article is titled, The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says this, J.G. is a lawyer in his early 30s. He's a fast talker and has the lean, sinewy build of a distance runner. 
His choice of profession seems preordained as he speaks in fully formed paragraphs. His thoughts organized by topic sentences. He's also a worrier, a big one, who for years used alcohol to soothe his anxiety. J.G. started drinking at 15 when he and a friend experimented in his parents' liquor cabinet. He favored gin and whiskey, but drank whatever he thought his parents would miss the least. He discovered beer, too, and loved the earthy, bitter taste on his tongue when he took his first cold sip. His drinking increased through college and into law school. He could, and occasionally did, pull back, going cold turkey for weeks at a time. But nothing quieted his anxious mind like booze, and when he didn't drink, he didn't sleep. After four or six weeks dry, he'd be back at the liquor store. By the time he was a practicing defense attorney, J.G., who asked to be identified only by his initials, sometimes drank almost a liter of Jameson in one day. He often started drinking after his first morning court appearance, and he says he would have loved to drink even more had his schedule allowed it. He defended clients who'd been charged with driving while intoxicated, and he bought his own breathalyzer to avoid landing in court on drunk driving charges himself. In the spring of 2012, J.G. decided to seek help. He lived in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 rehabs, people there like to say, and he knew what to do check himself into a facility. He spent a month at a center where the treatment consisted of little more than attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. He tried to dedicate himself to the program, even though, as an atheist, he was put off by the faith-based approach of the 12 steps, five of which mention God. Everyone there warned him that he had a chronic progressive disease— and that if he listened to the cunning internal whisper promising that he could have just one drink, he would be off on a bender. J.G. says it was this message, that there were no small missteps and one drink might as well be a hundred, that set him on a cycle of binging and abstinence. He went back to rehab once more and later sought help at an outpatient center. Each time he got sober, he'd spend months white-knuckling his days in court and nights at home. Evening would fall and his heart would race as he thought ahead to another sleepless night. So I'd have one drink, he says. And the first thing on my mind was, I feel better now, but I'm screwed. I'm going right back to where I was. I might as well drink as much as I possibly can for the next three days. He felt utterly defeated. And according to AA Doctrine... The failure was his alone. When the 12 steps don't work for someone like J.G., Alcoholics Anonymous says that person must be deeply flawed. The big book, A.A.'s Bible, states, quote, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. J.G.'s despair was only heightened by his seeming lack of options. Every person I spoke with told me there was no other way, he says. The 12 steps are so deeply ingrained in the United States that many people, including doctors and therapists, believe attending meetings, earning one sobriety chips, and never taking another sip of alcohol is the only way to get better. 
Hospitals, outpatient clinics, and rehab centers use the 12 steps as the basis for treatment. But although few people seem to realize that there are alternatives, including prescription drugs and therapies that aim to help patients learn to drink in moderation. Unlike Alcoholics Anonymous, these methods are based on modern science and have been proved in randomized, controlled studies to work. For J.G., it took years of trying to work the program, pulling himself back onto the wagon only to fall off again, before he finally realized that Alcoholics Anonymous was not his only or even his best hope for recovery. But in a sense, he was lucky. Many others never make that discovery at all. The article continues. The debate over the efficacy of 12-step programs has been quietly bubbling for decades among addiction specialists, but it's taken on new urgency with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which requires all insurers and state Medicaid programs to pay for alcohol and substance abuse treatment, extending coverage to 32 million Americans who did not previously have it and providing a higher level of coverage for an additional 30 million. Nowhere in the field of medicine is treatment less grounded in modern science. A 2012 report by the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University compared the current state of addiction medicine to general medicine in the early 1900s, when quacks worked alongside graduates of leading medical schools. The American Medical Association estimates that out of nearly one million doctors in the United States, only 582 identify themselves as addiction specialists. The Columbia Report notes that there may be additional doctors who have a subspecialty in addiction. Most treatment providers carry the credential of addiction counselor or substance abuse counselor, for which many states require little more than a high school diploma or GED. Many counselors are in recovery themselves. The report stated, quote, The vast majority of people in need of addiction treatment do not receive anything that approximates evidence-based care. Alcoholics Anonymous was established in 1935 when knowledge of the brain was in its infancy. It offers a single path to recovery, lifelong abstinence from alcohol. The program instructs members to surrender their ego, accept that they are powerless over booze, make amends to those they've wronged, and pray. Alcoholics Anonymous is famously difficult to study. By necessity, it keeps no records of who attends meetings, members come and go, and are, of course, anonymous. No conclusive data exist on how well it works. In 2006, the Cochrane Collaboration, a healthcare research group, reviewed studies going back to the 1960s and found that, quote, no experimental studies unequivocally demonstrated the effectiveness of AA or 12-step approaches for reducing alcohol dependence or problems. The big book includes an assertion first made in the second edition, which was published in 1955, that AA has worked for 75% of people who have gone to meetings and, quote, really tried. It says that 50% got sober right away, and another 25% struggled for a while but eventually recovered. According to AA, these figures are based on members' experience. In his recent book, The Sober Truth, 
Debunking the bad science behind 12-step programs in the rehab industry, Lance Dodes, a retired psychiatry professor from Harvard Medical School, looked at Alcoholics Anonymous's retention rates, along with studies on sobriety and rates of active involvement attending meetings regularly and working the program among AA members. Based on these data, he put AA's actual success rate somewhere between 5 and 8%. That is just a rough estimate, but it's the most precise one I've been able to find. The author of the article says, I spent three years researching a book about women and alcohol. Her best-kept secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control, which was published in 2013. During that time, I encountered disbelief from doctors and psychiatrists every time I mentioned that the Alcoholics Anonymous success rate appears to hover in the single digits. We've grown so accustomed to testimonials from those who say AA saved their life that we take the program's efficacy as an article of faith. Rarely do we hear from those for whom 12-step treatment doesn't work. But think about it. How many celebrities can you name who bounced in and out of rehab without ever getting better? Why do we assume they failed the program rather than the program failed them? The article continues, but I'll let you read the rest of it on your own, and I will include that link in the description box of this broadcast. On Skype, I have Jonathan Stewart. Do you go by John Stewart? Do you have to navigate that gauntlet, you know, to have the name of the celebrity, John? It's really good if you're trying to book a restaurant in New York. It works very well. And what do I could do? I call you Jonathan or John? What do you like? John's been my, you know, since I was a kid. So John's good for All me. Right. Well, you had contacted me via email and you had sort of a dog in this fight and wanted to speak about 12-step programs, about addiction, about your own journey. And so let me just hand the reins over to you. Give me a quick introduction. Who are you? Cool. I'm uh, I'm a lecturer in the UK. I'm also a PhD student. I was uh, a musician in the 90s and found recovery in the year 2000. I've been sober since then. I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm very grateful for that. After about 13 years, I stopped attending. I joined AA as an atheist and struggled greatly with that. But through good sponsorship and meeting attendance, I found a higher power. I prayed every day and it saved my life. But it set up fairly uh, difficult cognitive dissonance. And after about 13 years, I stepped away from it. I discovered your program and a few others. Uh, I was able to read all the books I'd been hiding away from for many years, Hitchens and those kind of people. I watched one particular YouTube video, which was Andy Thompson's Why We Believe in Gods, who I believe you know, and that turned me back into an atheist overnight. So after 13 years of praying to a higher power, who I believed was keeping me sober, I was an atheist again. And I haven't been to AA now for, for coming up for four years. I'm still sober. And I've looked at some of the alternatives, and I've tried to understand what happened to me. How did somebody who was a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, I'm British after all, um, become a person of faith? And how did that help me? Because it did. It saved my life. But it's an AA works. It's a great place. It's very friendly. It's free. It's anonymous. You don't have to declare it to your doctor. It's not going to stop you getting a mortgage later in life. It's got a good self-development program. There's a lot of people want to help you there. But it's predicated on a lie. There's no God. 
Well, let me stop you there, John. I mean, did you have to lie to yourself to overcome your addiction? Oh, yeah. But here's the thing, okay? I was going to die. And so my position is I'm not anti-AA. I'm pro-choice. There's lots of alternatives. But uh, my basic position is, you know, better a sober alcoholic in church than a drunk on the street destroying his or her family. Look at all the crime that's related to drink, 50-60% of hospital admissions, 70% of murders, 6% of deaths worldwide. At any one time, 30% of Americans have have an AUD, an alcohol use disorder issue in their life. So it's an interesting case because I'm a massive fan of Hitchens, but the whole position that God is is necessarily always a bad thing, isn't always true. And looking at the work of Andy Thompson really helped me explain how I'd found faith. His his YouTube video, Why We Believe in Gods, and his book, Why We Believe in Gods, is incredible because it explains the evolutionary driver behind faith. It's very convincing. So I became fascinated in stories of loss of faith, such as yours, for example, and many of the guests that you've had on your show, and um, interested in AA as an institution, because the interesting thing about the 12 steps and AA is it's very effective, but it's predicated on a lie. And there are a small number of people in AA who are atheists who are struggling to poke through. And I never met any of those people in 2000 when I was going to trying to get sober. But since then, they've become much stronger. Ironically, in Toronto, where the local AA group, intergroup, tried to ban the atheist meetings, and they started a website called AA Agnostica, and another website, AA Beyond Belief, and they won a case at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. So they won the right to be represented in AA. So AA is coming under certain pressures institutionally now. That's that's. I'm interested in it because I think it's a good thing, but I think in some ways it needs to change, but it can't change. The reason why it exists and it's existed for so long is because it's constitutionally very stable, but the world has changed and AA won't ally with others. It's struggling to accept the idea that many, many people are now atheists or people who have no faith. Uh, and it doesn't have the mechanism for change. The membership numbers have stagnated since 1991. America's grown, the population of America has grown by 30% during that time. So um, there's some interesting things going on. Let's talk about Andy Thompson for a moment. Yeah. He and I had an interesting conversation about how many people brush off the placebo effect. But there is an actual physiological effect when people yep. believe they are being helped, even yes. if there's no medicine in their medicine. Would you call this brand of Alcoholics Anonymous, a placebo effect? Of course, very much so. So you tell somebody, there's famous cases where there was a guy in, uh, Mr. Wright is his pseudonym. They gave him a drug they told him would would cure a cancer that he had and it went into remission. And then he read online that this drug didn't work and it came back and then they told him, no, new tests have come out to say that it does work. And he went into remission again. And then he looked it up. He went to the medical journals and realized they were spinning him a lie. And he came back and he died. There's lots of examples of we know how powerful placebo is. And if you're an alcoholic or an addict, your problem lies in your mind. You are doing something often against your own will. 
And placebo works. If it can work for tumors or colds or whatever, which we know it can because that's why, you know, some certain crazy therapies exist because people believe they work. If it can work for that, then it can really work for drug addiction and alcoholism because that basic problem is solved if you don't pick up a drink and you don't go crazy as a result of that. Is there an option for recovery or for coping, for navigating, where I, I don't have to construct a fantasy? Well, this is what's interesting, because when I got sober, those things didn't really exist, or they were tiny, and now they do. So I, I left AA because of the cognitive dissonance when I lost my faith, and now I've realized that there's a growing atheist AA fellowship, which is part of AA, and now can't be thrown out because of the decision in Canada. And there are other methods like smart recovery, which uses uses cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and is very effective, but it's tiny. Other methods like life ring, which are another form of peer support, and we know that peer support works. And then there's another method called the Sinclair method, which involves taking a medication an hour or two before you drink, and you can regain control. Now, all of these things are very effective, particularly the Sinclair method, And actually, about 25% of people who use the Sinclair method find sobriety. But AA won't discuss them, and it won't endorse them. You can't have a leaflet at an AA meeting. And there are hundreds of leaflets at AA meetings. There's leaflets for lesbian and gay people, for Native Americans, for ex-prisoners, for ex-armed services. You can't have a a leaflet at an AA meeting that suggests alternative solutions, because AA is constitutionally set up not to endorse alternative solutions. And the world has changed since the 1930s. We know more about alcoholism. We have alternatives. So everybody knows you go to AA if you're a drunk, and they don't hear about the alternatives. The Sinclair method works for around about 75% of people, and it's been in existence for nearly 20 years, largely in Finland, developed by an American doctor in Finland. And I would encourage anybody who's struggling with alcohol, to look at a movie by Claudia Christian, the sci-fi actress from Babylon 5, called One Little Pill. She made a documentary. She funded it herself about the Sinclair Method, and she made it because no one knew about it. And uh, so there are alternatives, but people just don't hear about them because everybody assumes you go to AA, and they go to AA, and AA, all you talk about is AA. And it works and it's great, but people need to know the alternative. Smart. Does it work? I mean, what's the what's the recovery rate as opposed to others, as opposed to trying to get sober on your own? What's the track record for AA? It's really interesting. It's difficult to quantify. There's been a bunch of different studies. Uh, it, I'm still in touch with a lot of AAs, particularly in the United States via Facebook, and we discuss this a lot. Um, I think... For people who go and for people who really give it a try, you're looking at 25%. And that's roughly the same for Smart Recovery as well, which is the CBT program. And all all the group therapies, if you do it and you try it and you give it your best shot, you're in with a good chance of finding recovery. The Sinclair method, that has 75% recovery, which is incredible. So about half the people can control their drinking and about 25% stop altogether. And you know, so, so there's lots, it's a very good time for anybody who's listening who has a drink problem. Don't give up. 
do not give up. There's never been a better time to find recovery. AA works. It's good. It's helpful. People are super friendly. And there's a lot of atheist AA around. Have a look at AA Agnostica or AA Beyond Belief, the websites. But there's other things too that can really help you. And my blog, if you type in leaving AA, staying sober, it's the first thing that comes up on Google. And I discuss those in my blog. There's, there's a lot of help out there. Let's talk about your life. I mean, you were a pop rock musician in the 90s. You have some music featured in feature films, correct? Yeah, we have. Ironically, we had two tracks in Train Spotting. <laughs> Who's we now? Sleeper. It was a Britpop band. So we were like uh, second tier. We, were, we toured the opening for Blur and all that kind of stuff and Radiohead and people like that. So um, as the song is featured in Train Spotting, which is essentially a, a film about heroin. Are you addicted at this time in your life? Yeah, I was. I was. Uh, funnily enough, I, I haven't written a book yet, but our singer did. Our singer wrote a wonderful memoir, and um, she's called Louise Wenner, W E N E R, and that's available on on Amazon. Uh, just for one day, it's called, and uh, she details my drinking and drugging in in great detail in the book. And I, I sort of said. You know, feel free. I said, you need to sell a book, so you write what you want to write as an amend, which is part of the AA step nine, you know, make amends. I said, I, I wasn't a very good person to be in a band with, so so you tell the people how you felt about it. And she did. Um, that's okay. It's kind of funny. It's very, very well written. What were you like, John? I mean, paint a picture for us. Yeah, I was just a drunk. I just, you know, uh, well, what most alcoholics will identify with the idea that, you're, you 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 have an insecurity complex. You, you're often afraid or neurotic, uh, but you're also massively self-centered and selfish. So you're kind of like king baby, and um, and that was me, you know. And 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 for many people, you put you put people in a scenario where um, their drinking and drugging is endorsed, which is what happens when you get a record deal and have hit records that can be super dangerous as we now know, as we've known for many years, whether it's Amy Winehouse or anybody in that situation. And that's the tragedy is that someone like Amy couldn't find access, did probably died without even knowing about the Sinclair method. And what, what I hope is that that might change through speaking on shows like this and gradually it's people are hearing about it more and more the ironically the drug that's used in the sinclair method is out of patent so there's nobody going to doctors with pens to sell it because it's it, but which which means it's very cheap to use as well and you know like anybody you drink because it's the natural thing to do so i just i just drank and i found a a job that allowed me to do that my first cocaine was given to me by my a and r man who signed me he spent all this money helping a band make a record and then gave the guitarist the most addictive, one of the most addictive drugs you can, you can take. Uh, so that's the world of rock and roll, you know, We've plenty of those kind of stories around. Do you still crave? Do you still have those moments where you think, man, I could sure use a hit right now? No, because I understand the processes behind it. The, I've become fascinated by evolutionary psychology and I understand how it works. The, the, there's a, a wonderful book by Robert Dudley called The Drunken Monkey, which was featured recently on the front cover of the National Geographic magazine. It's the first time it's had any publicity since it came out in 2011. 
And, you know, it's, it's related to obesity. We crave sugar, we crave booze, we crave salt because we grew up in an environment where those vital nutrients are very rare. And now we live in a world where they're not. And I feel, I feel blessed, blessed is the wrong word, I'm very grateful that I now know what happened to me. I now know how the faith processes worked. And I know what the alcoholism was. It's not natural to get hold of sugars and booze in the way that we can. In the kind of environment we evolved, the jungle, that was very rare. And that's why our reward systems are so super sensitive to it, because that was a one-time evolutionary advantage. So once you understand all that, occasionally you might think, oh, I'd quite like to have a drink, but you know what's going on. And one of the advantages of staying actively in recovery, whether you're attending AA or SMART or LifeRing, is you get those regular reminders. And you might do it in AA through sponsoring somebody through the steps, as I've done many times. Or you might do it now, as I do, through trying to reach out to people in other ways. If you had the knowledge then that you have now, you know, you're self-aware, you understand more about cognitive processes and how we can sort of trick ourselves. If you were addicted today as an atheist who was a fan of Hitchens and Andy Thompson and whatnot, and you went into a program, could you cope without the idea of a higher power? Could you get through? Could you get cured? I struggled, mate. I struggled at the time. It was a year between my first AA meeting and my second, and I lost everything. I ended up homeless. But I think, you know, if, if you don't believe in God, can you get sober? Because from your own admission, you... Your belief in a higher power, your allegiance to a higher power helped you out, even if you were kidding yourself, right? So here's what has to happen. The pain of the drinking has to get worse than the ignominy of the prayer. So once the pain of the drinking got worse than the humiliation of the prayer, then I'm like, fine, which way is Mecca? What do I do? <laughs> See? Now, what, what I'd like is for people to be able to get sober without becoming homeless. It cost me thousands and thousands, and th- it cost me everything. And all along, there was a pill I could have taken, and I didn't know. I didn't know it was there. It's been there for 20 years. And no one told me people are dying, and they don't know the alternatives. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that wrong? You've talked so much, though, John, about how you needed someone there for you. What do you call them? Sponsors or accountability partners? Yeah, a sponsor is someone who takes you through the program. And I've sponsored people. Is sobriety possible without someone else to do it on your own? Do you really require, do you need other people? I would think you would certainly... Yeah. You would need some other, you know, a human touch, a human voice, a reassurance, someone to keep you honest, right? Exactly. That's exactly it. And that's the power of a fellowship like AA. I took somebody to a meeting that's a friend. She's very young. She's in terrible trouble. It's the first meeting I went to in nearly four years. And she was overwhelmed by the power in the room. And when I was going to AA, I thought that power was God. But it's not. It's just common human decency. We're a social animal. We evolved to respond to each other. Andy Thompson writes about how I can look at your eyes and tell 47 different emotions just from your eyes. 
And that's the, the power of the group and the power of group psychology. We absolutely need that. And that's why AA works. Um, not everybody's comfortable in that scenario, which is why such a tragedy nobody knows about the alternatives, because so many people are dying without knowing about those. But there's no question that AA works. Any group works. And I wouldn't have got sober without the help of my sponsor, who was a wonderful, wonderful man. A condition of sponsorship was I prayed. I prayed to a God I didn't believe in. He said, that doesn't, he said, God doesn't mind if you don't believe in him. Just ask him to help you stay sober. And I prayed and I stopped drinking. I stopped on the first day I prayed. And there was, okay, so maybe there is a God. I'll give it 1%. And that's what Andy Thompson writes about those little things that might just be possible. Touch on, you know, we say, we say touching wood or knock on wood in the United States. Well, that's a relation to the tree god. If I tell you that there's a tree on your lawn that will pay off your mortgage and put your children through university, if you recant a prayer to it, you won't believe me. But if I knock on the table and go knock on wood, it's the same thing. That dates back to the tree gods. So it's this idea of minimally counterintuitive ideas. So you get an alcoholic who's really on their knees. You ask him to pray. They stay sober for the first day in maybe five years of drinking. They're like, well, maybe there's something in this. And that's how people find faith in recovery. And it's very powerful. And that's the journey that I went through. And then eventually, because I kind of knew it wasn't real, the cognitive dissonance just became overwhelming. But it saved my life. So I can't knock it, you know. It's a sort of a complex web. I'm sure that the audience is going to chew on this for a long time. The idea of using structure, using mm. iconic imagery, even religious imagery to latch on to something, even if after the fact you realize it was a human constructed icon. Yeah, it's very nuanced. It's a new that you find plenty of people who will bash AA. Many people hate AA and that's OK. That, it's a free country. But the truth is somewhere in between. You know, AA doesn't have structures of protection. There's a problem with predation in AA. People aren't necessarily safe there. There's a, there's a wonderful film called The 13th Step, which is about the problem of sexual predation in AA. And Monica Richardson, who made that, she's become a friend. And we feel very differently about it. I'm supportive of AA. She hates it. But you will find plenty of people who hate, hate AA. And I'm very supportive of Monica and her campaign because there is no protection. God is protecting you in AA. Well, we don't live in that world anymore. We don't live in the 1930s anymore. We live in the post-Bill Cosby world where people have to be accountable. So it's a very nuanced discussion. This thing works, but it's kind of old-fashioned. It can't really change. The reason it can't change is the reason it exists still, because it's a very stable institution. But there's, the world has changed. How, you and I are talking because of international communication. You know, so people who might never have known about the Sinclair Method or, or Life Ring or Smart Recovery now have that option. The only place you could go for help was AA for 80 years. Well, now there, there are other things too. And you can combine them. So there's really no better time to find recovery. You could do a smart meeting and an AA meeting and some, the Sinclair method. You can do all those things. And there's a lot of help out there for people. It's just frustrating that people have to hit. There's a myth in AA you have to hit rock bottom. Well, many people don't survive their rock bottom. 
And there's a medication you can take all along that no one knows about. No one knows about Sinclair method, and it's so powerful and so effective, particularly in Finland, where it's been used for many years. I will include a link to your essay called Leaving AA, Staying Sober, and an interview that you did with The Guardian. It was called Alcoholics Anonymous Saved My Life, But I Lost My Faith. I know you've sort of been on the speaking circuit and you're out there trying to help other people. What would you say to someone who is navigating addiction right now? What would your words to them be to wrap up this interview? Keep going. Keep going. There are some very good people who can help you. There are some very, very good atheist AA groups. Don't turn your back on any of the possible solutions. You don't know what will work for you. Investigate the Sinclair Method. Watch Claudia Christian's film, One Little Pill. Go to AA. Find yourself some atheist AA groups online. Check out LifeRing. Check out Smart Recovery, which uses CBT, which is a slightly more modern version of what the 12 steps try and do. And don't give up. Don't never give up. You can do it. Jonathan Stewart, thank you so much for a compelling conversation and for being a part of this broadcast. Really good stuff. Thank you. Coming up in the last segment of the broadcast, we're going to talk about the legality of whether or not a court can mandate or should mandate Alcoholics Anonymous as part of a sentence. Hey, we'll keep you out of jail, but you have to go to rehab at AA. Or we'll reduce your sentence, but you must go to AA. Well, if Alcoholics Anonymous is loaded with religious language. Is this legal? Is it constitutional? We're going to talk to a couple of attorneys after the break. I'm also going to speak to a mental health professional, a gentleman named Austin Moore, who has worked for the Center for the Study of Addiction and Recovery and has studied atheists inside 12-step programs as part of his graduate research. And Austin's going to share his perspective. Lots more coming up in just a second. Joining me next on the broadcast, I have a couple of legal experts. I've got Amanda Kniff. She is National Legal and Public Policy Director for American Atheists. And Monica Miller, who is Senior Counsel at the American Humanist Association. Amanda and Monica, it's great to have you both. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'll start with you, Amanda Kniff. Alcoholics Anonymous, is it a cult? Is it a church? What's your take? I think for millions of people who have used Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, they are programs that are great assets when they're dealing with addiction. But they are religious programs. They invoke a higher power. And whether you believe that higher power is a doorknob or a god, it puts the onus on another entity rather than self-reliance. And that makes it a religious entity and a problem for many people who are atheist and agnostic. I've actually heard the doorknob thing before. They say, just pick something. Just pick something that can be your higher power and you can lean on and focus on it as you're sort of on the road to recovery. And I always thought that's kind of arbitrary. Like, isn't a mm-hmm. higher power with a capital H and a P something bigger than something we just hand pick? right? Monica Miller, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. It's, it, you know, for an atheist mind to say that a chair is a higher power is just nonsense. And I think that the prisons and some medicine boards, you know, this, when the state tries to compel everyone into this program, it's 
certainly problematic because it's not a one-size-fits-all. As Amanda said, it certainly helps a lot of people, but you do have to be religious or at least be able to accept a higher power to participate. And a great many people, you know, especially, like I said, in the prisons, don't subscribe to one. And often they're left without any recourse. And sometimes they're even coerced into participating as a condition of parole or to, um, you know, get certain privileges. And that's completely against the First Amendment. Can either or both of you speak to this sort of mandated, this coerced participation? You can either go to prison or you go to AA. Can this constitutionally be enforced by the courts or should it? Absolutely not. I mean, the courts, I think Amanda alluded to earlier, have clearly said that you cannot coerce inmates or other citizens to participate in religious programs. And they've been abundantly clear that AA and NA qualify as religious programs. So the case law is really unanimous and across the board that it's unconstitutional to do this. And yet we still receive a complaint on a fairly regular basis from inmates across the country alleging that prisons are not allowing them to have a secular alternative. um, And even when they ask for one, are not provided one. So, you know, we've had to intervene a number of times in these cases. And usually we prevail, but it's still we shouldn't even have to get to that stage because of the law being so well settled. How do you intervene? Normally, uh, for these cases, we've always just sent letters, uh, cease and desist letters, informing them of the law, and that has resolved it for the most part in these instances where we've gotten involved. We haven't had to take it to uh, litigation yet because usually they realize that they were in the wrong and kind of, you know, correct whatever mistake that they made. Amanda, how does American atheists get involved in this kind of stuff? Just like Monica at the American Human Association, we have to kind of wait for people to come to us and complain. And then as soon as we know about it, we try to address the situation without litigation. We've been contacted by people who have been mandated to go to AA um, as, as a condition of parole, probation, who are in prison and want a non-religious alternative and are being denied. So much like what Monica said, that's what we do. We've also found that this is a problem in the Veterans Administration. There are lots and lots of veterans who are not religious, and yet we're finding across the country that at many VA hospitals and and treatment centers, there are no alternatives to AA and NA. And so that is also something that we are working on with the Veterans Administration and with some veterans who have come to us asking for help. Do either one of you have specific organizations you recommend? I realize I'm putting you on the spot, but I mean, if you're saying AA is so religious, do you recommend an alternative or are you just trying to open the door for alternatives? There certainly are existing alternatives like rational recovery and smart recovery. I wouldn't be able to personally recommend any of them because I haven't participated, but I know that there are a host of them out there. And certainly there's science to those programs you know, that are alternatives to AA and NA, and they definitely don't require a belief in a higher power. And it's important to note that even if there isn't a secular group or or program in the area, that does not mean that you are forced into AA. They can't make you choose between religion or no program at all. And so we try to work with these groups to expand, give them referrals, and also now, you know, with the VA, fighting for government sponsorship and dollars so that they can provide these services. Um, And sometimes they're just told that if you can't find an option, then tough luck. And that's, that's also where we intercede and try to help out. Do you have any thoughts on the issue, the overall umbrella topic of addiction and addiction recovery? I think it's just a very personal thing for each individual. I mean, if AA is working for someone, I certainly wouldn't try to persuade them otherwise if they think it's working for them. Um, That's just my personal stance on it. Um, You know, so I'm not per se against AA and NA when it works for people. I think it's just for those who don't or where there's not another alternative for them that, you know, I have a problem. 
We've heard a lot about the cafeteria nature of programs like these. Most people go in and they just sort of grab whatever works for them and skip the rest. And we're hearing this pattern over and over in the calls and emails that we're getting. I don't know. Amanda Kniff, did you have any thoughts? I agree with Monica that if a program works for you, whether you're religious or not, that's all that matters. And I grew up in Iowa where meth addiction was a huge problem and really had severe economic, personal, and social consequences. And so I I think anything that works for somebody should be supported. And I'm really, really uh, encouraged by the fact that we're seeing addiction uh, recognized as a disease and not some sort of moral failing. And I think that also helps with the idea that there should be secular treatment because it has to, doesn't have to have a religious component in order to recognize and treat a disease. And if somebody was encountering some sort of a court-mandated sentence, for lack of a better word, to attend AA, how could they contact either of your respective organizations? I'll start with you, Amanda Kniff. Uh, Sure. You can go to atheist.org and click on the legal section, and there is a form that you can fill out and telling us what your issue is. Or you can email us directly at legal at atheist.org. Monica Miller? Uh, Yeah, same deal. Uh, You can just go onto our website, americanhumanist.org, and we also have a form you can fill out, or you can also email us directly um, at legal at americanhumanist.org. Thanks for the great work both of you are doing out there. And thanks so much for being a part of the show and the discussion today. Greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. On the switchboard, I have area code 586. Thanks for calling. You're on the Thinking Atheist radio podcast. What's your name? Hi, Seth. My name is uh, Mike, and I'm from Michigan. We're talking on the broadcast about 12-step programs, about recovery from addiction. What's your story? Well, Seth, um, I'm a lifelong addict. And I've been a member of 12th Step program for about 30 years. My drug of choice was heroin, and I've been clean now for 17 years. Let's go to the beginning of the story. Tell me about heroin. How'd you get started? Uh, You know, I got started. I was always open to doing any type of drug there was, uh, even from when I was a young teenager. And, you know, I just kind of found the right people at the right time, and I was more than happy to give it a try. And it did not turn out as well as I had hoped. It was it was bad news. Tell me about the feeling that you get when you take heroin. When you do heroin, uh, the best way to describe it is euphoria. I mean, it's really the height of pleasure. Some people get sick when they do it. I never did. There's a reason that people put up with a lot of consequences in their life to keep doing it. I mean, it's really a lot of pleasure. It's kind of a downer. You know, so a lot of people, they'll sleep, actually nod out is what they're doing. And it's just, euphoria is is really the best way to describe it. I think of all the cliches, you know, the track marks up and down the arms and whatnot. Were you that guy? I was. I was. I really really went down into the depths. I did a lot of damage to my body. Uh, I did have all the track marks. I was hospitalized many times with infections of my arms, systemic infections with blood infections, blood clots. Um, I was an injector, and there's a lot bad that can happen when you're doing that, and I experienced a good deal of that. So, yeah, I was really that stereotypical heroin addict. So how do you get to a point of critical mass? How did you end up in a 12-step program, and what was your experience? Well, I, I had been forced into rehab a couple of times by my family. 
uh, family pressure, but I got out and I, I continued to use. But that was my that was my first experience with 12-step program was in rehab. And I continued to stop by these meetings. Narcotics Anonymous is what I went to. And it never really stuck for me, but I wasn't really interested in not using. My goal was not to stop using at that time. You know, my goal was to learn how to use without consequences, which just doesn't work. So that was my beginning. That's my introduction to 12-step programs. And then, you know, through the years, I had been in and out of uh, Narcotics Anonymous, but it was always kind of a mainstay, a through line in my, in my using life were these meetings. Narcotics Anonymous is using with permission AA's model, the 12-step model. I've had some people bring up NA as a more secular version of addiction recovery. According to the people who've contacted me, there's not as much God speak in it. There aren't as many references to a higher power. Did you encounter any of that in NA? Uh, As compared to AA, yes. But there's still a lot of God speak in Narcotics Anonymous. I mean, without a doubt, it's just, it's not as prevalent as maybe some of the newer ones, the Overeaters Anonymous, the Gamblers Anonymous. I don't go to those, so maybe they have a little less of that, but there's certainly less God speak than AA in NA. Well, how did you, and then how do you feel about all that? Well, you know, uh, you know, my feeling as an atheist, since I don't believe in God, is God's not necessary for recovery. When I say that in meetings, I get a lot of blank stares. I get people who just don't understand how that could be possible. But this is my experience. This, this is just how I, I look at things. You know, addiction wasn't given to us by God. I don't know why you would ascribe God removing the obsession and compulsion of the addiction. The addiction never goes away. But a lot of people will, once they lose the obsession and compulsion to use, they believe that's some kind of a miracle in their life. Now, for myself, I think it's just a natural course of removing the drugs from use. And it generally works out to about 90 days or so for people to lose the obsession and the compulsion. And once those are gone, it becomes much easier to not use and enter a life of recovery. But there's still a lot of people who want to give credit to God. And I just think there's no reason to do that. It's just a natural part of our brain. You just stand up right there in the meeting and you say, you don't need God to get through this. <laughs> I do really? not. Uh, I, I do not. I, look, there are times where our, uh, uh, in meetings we have open talks where instead of a, a regular meeting, you'll just have a speaker. If I'm that speaker, I voice my opinion and I let people know what I think about it. In the meetings, although people know I'm an addict, I don't give credit to God. I don't try and disabuse people who are early in recovery of their faith in God. These are people who are in a very precarious position. And make no mistake, it is life and death. And if it is their belief that it is God that's keeping them clean, fine. Now, if they want to have a discussion later on, they know I'm an addict, I'm more than happy to have that discussion. But whatever it takes for a recovering addict to stay clean, that's fine with me. So if I'm understanding you, your perspective is The best move is to physically remove yourself from the presence of the drug, sweat it out for 90 days, let your body begin to recover, and then what? Do you do sponsors? Do you have friends? Do you have support groups? Do you still go to AA? What? Right. Yeah, absolutely. All all of that. Sponsors, um, 
there, there's no reason to not do it. Um, there's no, there's no uh, uh, end goal line to reach. It's a constant maintenance that you have to do with your life to assure that you don't go back to using. You know, 90 days is, is kind of a, a thumbnail, kind of a, an estimate. But once you get to that point, you should be plugged in to, say, Narcotics Anonymous. Now you have a different social structure. You have different friends. And all of this is focused on not using. There's no downside to that, <laughs> you know, that, that I can see. Um, you know, if you go back to sitting at the bar and just drinking water, there's a downside to that. You know, there's always that temptation there. Uh, but there's, there's no reason to change what's working as far as I'm concerned. So despite the God quotient, you would still mm -hmm. support AA? Sure. Absolutely. We know it works. Um, there's millions of people who have gone into recovery through AA, NA, and all the 12-step programs. It works. Now, if there's something better out there, I'm open to it, but I'm not really interested in it either. I mean, I'll listen to it, but I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. You found you something know. that worked for you. That's right. And actually, it works for, it's worked for millions of people. Well, Mike, I appreciate your perspective. We're going to get both sides of the position, both sides of the argument throughout the broadcast. And, you know, again, there's, there's no yes, no answer to the question of 12-step programs. It's a complex ocean of options and people and, and concepts and, and those types of things. But I appreciate you so much sharing your perspective with us on the broadcast today. And congratulations on 17 years of sobriety. That's pretty amazing. Thank you very much, Seth. And, let, you know, before we go, let me say that I really appreciate your show. And I just want to say it's important work what you're doing. You know, it's fun to listen to, but it's also important. And those of us who aren't on the front lines of this really appreciate it. Well, that means the world, man. It really does. Thank you, Mike, so much. And thanks again for calling the show. It's great to talk to you. Absolutely, Seth. Good to talk to you, too. Austin Moore is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He has a personal experience in regard to recovery and 12 steps. He has worked for the Center for the Study of Addiction. He joins me on the radio today. Austin, it's great to have you. Hi. Thanks. Great to be here. Did you suffer from addiction in your own life? You know, so what happened in my story is um, I, I was involved in self-medicating with drugs and, and really other behaviors throughout my life. So I think it's it's fair to say that, yes, I have what some people will call an addictive personality. I, I don't actually believe in the concept of addictive personality, but still, I think that I would qualify, sure. Well, you don't believe in an addictive personality, but you think you qualify as an addictive personality? <laughs> you know, it's a paradox, right? What do I do with that? Well, I think it, what I'm trying to get at is that I think I have maybe a different perspective on addiction than what is popularly discussed with it. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what addiction is. And I think a lot of that misinformation stems from various sources, one of them being AA and the 12-step model, I think continues to shape the language that we have to even use when talking about this topic. And I think it's really unfortunate because it's a it's a much different way of looking at what addiction really is. I don't even like the term addiction, actually. I like the term compulsive behavior or even addictive behavior to describe it versus addiction. Well, flesh it out for me then. If it's sure. compulsive behavior, give me three dimensions of that. So 
a compulsive behavior is referring to the basics of that there's a, a, a neurological component to a compulsive behavior that comes from you know some some neuro stuff like uh, our nucleus accumbens where the reward center of our brain is some people seem to be pretty sensitive or overly sensitive to behaviors that produce a lot of things like dopamine or epinephrine all kinds of different neurochemicals and they tend towards certain behaviors uh, at a higher rate than others. And I think that's what we would call addiction as somebody who maybe has an, an oversensitivity to things that we all find pleasurable. So in a sense, the nuclear cummins helps us to uh, to know um, when we need to eat, when we need, uh, it helps us reward us for, for things that we have to do, eating, using the restroom, you know, these feelings of relief and, and pleasure that we get are normal. That's how nature has has helped us to learn how to, to do the things that will keep us alive. But in our modern behavior and the way that society is, is set up, there's these these other behaviors that we have that trigger this part of our brain. And a lot of people take pleasure from drinking or you know gambling or uh, sex, for example, and they don't get out of control with it. There seems to be a certain population, though, that these simple things get way out of control really quickly. It's a vicious cycle. Let's say I'm going through a stressful time in my life. I'm down. I'm depressed. I drink. I struggle with the fact that I have no willpower. What was I thinking? I can't seem to break this. I feel even worse to cope with that. I drink. Is it always this type of vicious cycle? I say always, but I mean, is this... A common framework for addiction? Very. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's interesting. It's like what you're talking about right there gets to something that muddies up the water here. It's very common for people to, let's say, uh, loss of someone very close to you. You know, if a family member dies or, or some tragic event happens, you lose a job, to go through brief periods of, yeah, depression, maybe self medicating. But then when your environmental factors switch again, something happens, things get better, time goes on, they move out of that. And sometimes what would be mischaracterized as addiction is just that. It's just a, a temporary state of maybe self-medication. And, and what a temporary state means could be years, could be a long time. But the point is, is that just because somebody gets into that vicious cycle doesn't necessarily mean that they can't get out of it doesn't mean that they even have to abstain from that substance again. A lot of times the environmental factors themselves, our emotional state, what's going on in our life, can be really indicative of what kind of behaviors we're going to be, be doing and, and, and doesn't have anything to do with this, um, what we'll probably end up talking about later, the disease model. It has nothing to do with some disease that they have. It's more about just what we're using to treat that with. And, and compulsive behaviors are a really convenient a seemingly good idea at the time way of, of treating a temporary environmental factor. Interesting. I was in Christian radio for a lot of years and there was an artist named Carmen who had a song about, uh, it was always these scenario type songs where it was God and the devil doing battle. And I remember in one song, one of the lyrics talked about this demon of alcoholism. You know, it's a demon, it's satanic influence. You mentioned the mm -hmm. word disease. You want to talk then about the disease model for addiction? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the brief snapshot of the history of the disease model, if we go back to, um, I think, the 
40s. Uh, it might be the 50s, but uh, we have a guy named Ian e. Jelnick who popularized the disease model um, even further than than AA. It, it pops up with AA in 1935. It was a kind of a popular concept. Before that, we had what was called the moral model, where the reason why people would drink and, and were alcoholics was because of some moral deficiency they had. Well, that got shifted, and to AA's credit, they got us away from the moral model, but they replaced it with the disease model. And the disease model just states that there is some allergy, in quotations, that certain people have, that alcoholics have, that causes them to be become addicted. You know, something innate about them that makes them this uh, you know, addicted person. And this disease is theorized to be progressive, meaning that it gets worse with time, no matter what, and that it's chronic, so it's never going to go away. And that's, that's the basis of the disease model, that it's a progressive illness and that it's a chronic illness and, and ultimately a fatal illness if not treated. Now, let me stop you there. When you say progressively worse, what I have heard posited, and correct me if this is, is wrong, but let's say I'm up to five drinks a day. I will just pick a number, arbitrary number. And then I quit and I stop drinking for six months. The disease model says that actually my need for alcohol sort of continues to progress, meaning when I jump back in, I'm up to six or seven. Well, and so that's an interesting point, right? Because like that clearly wouldn't be the case. What they would say, and this is actually a common phrase that they'll use in like uh, in Narcotics Anonymous. It's a there's a million different spinoffs of AA, uh, of the twelve step model. But in NA, they say uh, your disease is outside doing pushups, right? It's just saying your illness continues no matter what. They wouldn't literally mean your tolerance is increasing. I think that that's kind of obvious that it wouldn't. Some people may have that misunderstanding, but what they're still referring to is that the internal sickness that you have that drives you to that behavior still continues, still grows. They'll call that like cross addiction sometimes. So for somebody who is sober from alcohol, they may start having more problems with sex or gambling or shopping or something like that that your disease is still always active and always needing more to fill that hole. What is it about Alcoholics Anonymous and these types of 12-step programs in general that gives you pause, Austin? I think to start that discussion, it's relevant to know sort of my background and, and my personal story with it is, is why it gives me pause. I was 17 years old. I was into all kinds of drugs, and my parents, doing their very best, uh, did a good job, and, and they, they noticed that I was doing cocaine and that kind of thing, and so they freaked out, as any parent would, and ended up sending me to a treatment center. And while I was at this treatment center, and, and this is true for most treatment, it's 12-step based. Uh, counseling is done kind of like a, a hybrid between being an AA sponsor and also doing some form of talk therapy, maybe some good aspects of therapy included. I was an atheist in, in high school, and uh, early on I was raised in a very devout Christian home. When I went to rehab, it was quickly – my mental health concerns were – they cared about them, but they framed what was the problem as you have this illness, you have this sickness, your depression is a symptom of that, and the treatment for it is AA. You need to be doing the 12 steps, you need to have a sponsor, and you need to ultimately submit to a higher power. And I didn't accept that at first, but I was really depressed and wanted out of this place. And 
so I, I started to buy into that and I would do the higher power thing. I would talk about uh, eventually accepting like some spiritual belief into uh, God, uh, but non-defined, not religiously based. Let me stop you there, Austin, real fast. Higher power means what? I mean, is it God? Is it do you assign agency to some arbitrary object in your own life? How do they qualify or quantify a higher power? That's an interesting thing. So what you will hear from a modern-day AA supporter is this isn't a religious program. This isn't a religion. This is a spiritual program. Why? Because it says higher power. It doesn't say God, even though if you read the 12 steps, big G God is all throughout it. But they still they, – they, they say literally in the second step, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That turns into higher power, and that language is used within their, their main text. That isn't well-defined. Now, if you read the context of the literature where it comes from, and you certainly understand the history of AA, when they're using that language, they're not actually saying this is just anything. You'll see in modern-day AA, they'll, they'll talk to people and say, well, you can pick the group as your higher power. You can use the principles of the program as your higher power. But it really, actually, if you, if you read the literature, they're not talking about that. They're talking definitely about a Judeo-Christian concept of God. And they will use other terms to try to make this more accessible to agnostics or people who are not religious. But the core is, is they, they view it truly as you maybe would start out with a non-defined concept of God, but there is a concept of God they have in mind in AA and in the 12 steps that keeps you clean and keeps you sober. And, and that, that aspect, I think, is is underreported by supporters of AA because it leads people to believe that it's a religion, which it is. Well, it's rather exclusionary, too, for those who you know, realize it's a Judeo-Christian framework and they don't follow that model. They might not jump into an AA meeting quite as quickly. And I know I detoured from your personal story, and I want to come back to that. But is there a danger when we say, I must have a source of power outside myself to overcome addiction. I can't do it myself. Is that problematic? Extremely so. It's ultimately why I wholeheartedly believe that it's unethical for a mental health professional to be advocating for 12 steps, honestly, because of that alone. We refer to that as the locus of control. Locus of control, meaning what is the factor that controls this behavior, controls the, the, what happens? Well, I am the locus of control for my behavior. I control what I do. I control you know, how I respond to things. And I'm ultimately responsible for, for my actions. Now, of course, my brain might make it easier for me to make bad choices, but I'm still responsible for that. And the foundation of AA and the 12-step model is externalizing the locus of control. And in fact, the locus of control for recovery, you can look at it, it's kind of a dual-edged sword that's really almost abusive in its way. The addict is responsible for their behavior, but the recovery, God is responsible for your recovery. So you don't get to have a, a pat on the back and feel great about yourself that you are staying sober, that the ultimate mechanism that keeps you sober is God. I mean, that's made very clear in step three, that you are turning your will and your life over to the care of God, that your thinking got you here. God is the, the, the thing that's going to get you out of this is their kind of philosophy. So what we have, though, is someone who is in a hugely vulnerable place who is surrendering their will. I mean, this sounds mm -hmm. dangerous 
in many cases, to the extreme. As someone could be easily, hugely taken advantage of in so many ways. Absolutely. I mean, it. Um, I don't think that it was necessarily designed this way. I think the founders of AA, they had some some personality problems themselves. I think they had the best of intentions with the program, but that's absolutely right. I mean, it's very easy when you have somebody coming into, let's say, a rehab facility. They're in a very, obviously very vulnerable spot. Their life is in in ruins. And if the thing that you sell them is this, in my opinion, unnecessary religious treatment for something, that might become truth for them. And it's really potentially harmful, especially if that's not a very effective treatment or an unnecessary treatment, to say the least. What if it works for them, man? You know, what if they go, I mean, we're hearing stories from people who went through and a higher power, the concept, even a human built construct of a higher power helped them find their way toward the lights. I mean, what would you say to that? I mean, I would say, first off, congratulations and good job. But I think that I would argue still that despite the fact that the AA worked for you, I don't think it was really AA that worked for you. You know, there was nothing unique about AA's philosophy that is even effective in treating addiction more than anything else or nothing at all. So if they did that, I would say good for you for staying sober. You did the things that you needed to do to change your environment, to change your mindset, to stay sober. And I give you credit for that because I wouldn't give AA credit for that. Austin Moore, let's get back to your story. You're in AA, you're looking around, you're starting to buy into the higher power, you're buying into the 12 steps, and then what? And then I was really an inquisitive kid. I I was raised in a Christian home, became an atheist. So, I mean, that's not easy to do. I questioned a lot of authority and things like that. There was a lesson early on that was taught to me by sponsors, by counselors, that I need to stop trying to to figure out the world around me and challenging everything and just go with it. You know, fake it till you make it. Just go with it. Quit questioning everything. Everything will be okay. And I bought that for a couple of years because I was getting happier. I was doing well. And, and I really did stop questioning things. I just went with it. And I was a, as pious of an AA member as you can be. I was chairing meetings. I was sponsoring people. I was going to meetings every single day for probably two years. However, I go back to college, and one of the better experiences of my life, I went to a philosophy class with a professor who was ex-clergy uh, atheist now, was teaching an ethics course, and he, he did a great job challenging a lot of our beliefs, and it just sort of led me down the rabbit hole again of like, oh, well, that's right. I'm an atheist. I forgot about that. <laughs> and once that hit, I really started to look around me in the meetings and look at the messages in the books with a critical eye for the really the first time I felt sort of like a fool and like I was taken advantage of. I felt really stupid actually that I had allowed myself to, for the better term, brainwashed, I guess, right? That this is how I had to be sober. So I really started challenging that and started doing some research on addiction and what really makes addiction work and what the modern concepts of addiction and addiction treatment are and and it really led me to leave AA and and ultimately to return to living kind of a normal life. I drink responsibly uh, and don't have any out of control behaviors with uh, with any kind of substances at this point in my life. Did you become sober then by sheer force of will? Was it just I'm going to get sober? During that time when I was challenging AA? Yes. I mean, when you were still addicted and you were going through the program, if AA is so problematic, what was your ticket out? How did you beat it? I mean, I think it was really 
finding other people within the 12 step community that were also atheist and, and agnostic was a really important point. And there's quite a few. And I think that will be continually a growing number within that community, even because you have to find people that have a similar worldview to you if uh, and are living a lifestyle that you, that you like, if you want to do that. It wouldn't benefit me to have been close with people who are very pious AA members in that conventional sense. So I had to find people who are willing to challenge those things with me and to view it. So that's who my friend group became. So you are in the profession of mental health. You run across someone who is going through addiction. If you don't send them to AA, what do you recommend? Well, the first course of action that I would recommend for anybody would be to get uh, some some therapy, to get some cognitive behavioral therapy or, or really any evidence-based practice therapy. A great resource for that would be you know, the Secular Therapist Project that Kayla Black uh, is, is running. And I think Daryl Ray founded that as well. As far as self-help goes, though, there are much better alternatives, especially for people in big cities. One is called Smart Recovery. They're a, a, an evidence-based um, self-help group. There's another one called SOS, Save Ourselves, or Secular Organization for Sobriety, SOS. They're another self-help group that works from a secular angle that is also more evidence-based, but still a self-help group nonetheless, so you can't really attest for the evidence of it. And there are several other links to uh, different ones. Those are just the two main big ones. So yeah, I can sing you. Yeah, if uh, if I may, I might have you send me sort of a, a list, a short list of some of the organizations you might recommend. Because while sure. we are taking sort of a you know a rather nuanced look at addiction, twelve step programs, alternatives to twelve step programs, I'd like to make sure that we have resources available for those who are navigating addiction or know someone who's navigating addiction in their own lives. It is something that's probably not talked about quite enough, isn't it? The cost that others pay for the addiction, you know, the spouses, the children, the parents, the family members, the friends, those who are in close proximity to those whose lives have been devastated by addiction. Do you ever watch the TV show Intervention? You ever seen that show? What's your perspective on that tactic. You bring someone in who's close to rock bottom, they've quote unquote ruined or are ruining their lives and the family members and friends get together and read a letter talking about how their addiction has damaged them and offering to send them off to rehab. I don't know how effective an intervention is. Do you have a perspective on that? I mean, I do actually. I I think that that show intervention itself actually shows some pretty extreme cases. Uh, It's not showing from what I've seen anyways, very mild cases. I think that what is great about that show is I think it can be a very effective tool to use with families to get somebody to get some help. And I think that it's it's establishing like a critical boundary that has to be done to, to stop basically getting a family on board to stop enabling that person and saying, here's our line in the sand, you need help. What's too bad about that is that they get that person on board and then they go and send them to a 12-step treatment. And, and that's the consequence of how the treatment world works sometimes. But um, you know, I, I will say that I think a big message to your listeners, Seth, is that even if you're in a, let's say, a rural area and they don't have smart recovery, they don't have SOS, you have to go to a treatment center and it's going to be a, a 12-step or religious-based even treatment center, you can still get good help. You just have to be very upfront with, I think, the staff, with, with your sponsor, with everyone around you that I am an atheist. This this is who I am. That's not 
anything that's wrong with me. You're not treating that. I'm not here to get religious. I am here to get treatment. I want evidence-based work. You demand that from your therapist. You say, I want to be using evidence-based practices. You might even say, I want to be you, you to be using cognitive behavioral therapy with me. I want you to be using only evidence-based practices. I don't want to talk about 12-step with you. Yeah, you might be there to treat addiction, but it doesn't mean you've surrendered boundaries or your own personal integrity, for sure. So. That's right. Yeah, just like you would with a medical doctor. You know, you may have some ahead uh, of getting treatment, some knowledge of what kind of treatments you, you would or wouldn't consider. You advocate for yourself with the doctor. You do the same when you even go to treatment. And, you know, they may give you some some problems with that, but you keep advocating for yourself that this is the kind of treatment that I want. I don't want a religious or 12-step treatment. Austin Moore, a compelling conversation. Thank you so much for lending your expertise to this discussion. We'll include some links in the description box for the audience's resources. Thanks again, my friend. Thank you. Well, this broadcast has certainly given us much to think about and much to talk about as we continue our discussions on our own time and our own terms about addiction, addiction recovery, and the resources out there. Now, I've included many of the links to resources brought up on this show in the description box. So if you are navigating addiction in your own life, or maybe you know someone who is, and you want to explore and find out more and vet some of these programs on your own, I would encourage you to do so. I've got links to seculartherapy.org and LifeRing and SOS Sobriety and Smart Recovery. Jonathan Stewart brought up the Sinclair Method. I'm going to go and check that out and find out what it's about. I've included that link, Refuge Recovery. And of course, if you know of another resource, leave that in the comments section of the broadcast and perhaps someone can find benefit there. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. Next Tuesday's broadcast, we're going to talk about this new film on Netflix, The Most Hated Woman in America, which is supposedly a biography of Madeleine Murray O'Hare, who founded American Atheist. She was a crusader and activist and was horribly murdered a few decades ago, and they've done this film that is supposed to be about her life. But how accurate is the film? Well, apparently not so much. I'm going to talk with Frank Zindler and David Silverman of American Atheists, among others, and get into the story, the true story, the actual story of Madeleine Murray O'Hare, on the show next week. And I'm just going to call the broadcast The Most Hated Woman in America. That's going to be an interesting show you do not want to miss. And I will see you then. Take care. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. Watch dozens of original videos on The Thinking Atheist YouTube channel. And visit our website for resources, links, contact information, the editor's blog, and more. TheThinkingAtheist.com As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.